That's not, that's not evil. Being hostile to all mankind and subversive is not evil. Well, I have to say that because St. Paul said the Jews are enemies of the entire human race. They are. What do you think of Jordan Peterson? Uh, did you see the video about where he said, I can't do it? Adam, I'm trying to do you a favor. You're fighting for the gay disco. Don't make your ignorance normative for the rest of us. Don't, don't use those kinds of slurs. You're fighting for the gay disco. What? Are there are no slurs here. Die for the gay disco. This is an uprising against smug elites. Smug elites. So they're the villains. And the opposite is Definitely our most requested guest, uh, Dr. E. Michael Jones, a man who needs no introduction. I mean, it is. That, that's, what they, that's what they pay the Rockefeller Foundation to do. Uh, you're not supposed to know what I just told you. They didn't know about this. They didn't know what we know now. I mean, is there any argument you can use to wake him up? Yeah, I think uh, God had a plan for your life. Well, you'd be jerking off to every curvy piece of driftwood you saw at the beach. Fight the people who don't like disco. Maybe you would. And you're consistently refusing to talk about pornography. Uh, Pete Buttigieg yeah. seems to be the exhibit A of that process. Yes, yes. Because you think that the anus is a sex organ, don't you, Pete? Uh, Richard Spencer hands out spears and he says, charge the machine gun nest. Dr. Jones. Sorry. <laughs> Not all of the heads of the Federal Reserve were Jews, but after a certain period of time, uh, that seemed to be the case. Hello and welcome to another edition of EMJ Live. It's a beautiful day in South Bend, Indiana, and we're still sitting in the afterglow of that con concert lecture that we gave, uh, I gave with the Bruder Trio on Monday. We talked a little bit about it with Georg uh, on last Friday's podcast, but then we had the experience of having the concert. Those of us who were lucky enough to be here in South Bend experienced, uh, first of all, live music. We have gotten so accustomed to hearing music through the little opening known as the earpod that you have no sense of the power of the music as those people understood it. This was a trio. Okay, this was a, a, a piece that, uh, of ri uh, written. First of all, they began with the Ghost Trio, uh, a piece written for a small audience to be performed in a house. Uh, one of the nobler houses would have a trio there. Uh, and so you had the power, all of the power but of the uh, orchestra there in a little room, but you also had a, a much clearer presentation of the essence of the work as it moved back from one instrument to the other. So it was just a powerful, powerful moment. Um, and 
it was just part of my experience uh, because I spent the whole week talking to Georg and his family about the situation in Germany. This, what, what people heard, if you listen to the Sixth Symphony, you were listening to uh, the time when Germany was the place where everybody wanted to go to find out what was happening. I mean, before it was Italy, if you lived in the time of Shakespeare and you wanted to be aware of what was happening in the arts, in science, in anything, you went to Italy. But by the uh, beginning of the 19th century, if you want, for the entire century, I, if, if somebody, somebody called the America, uh, uh, the 20th century, the American century, if that's the case, the 19th century was the German century. And it began with this burst of creativity in philosophy, which has come to be known as German idealism, and a burst of creativity in music that accompanied this. And the man who uh, epitomized that more than anyone else was Beethoven. Uh, and we talked at this thing. This, this is all, by the way, in this book. <laughs> if you haven't bought it, this is what part two is about in this book, about this burst of creativity in music. Art is always mimesis. Uh, music is mimesis, although it doesn't seem like a cave painting or anything like that because it's, it's mimesis in time. And it's mimesis that you can't see because it's imitation uh, of nature, but more or less the nature that is part of your mind and the movements of the soul. And so we, that's what we talked about. That's what happened in Germany. And anyone who is aware of anything knows that there was some, there was something, some catastrophe happened to Germany. Uh, during the 20th century. We all know there were two wars that were fought against Germany. We know, uh, the people here in this audience know, that World War I was basically Lord Grey and Winston Churchill luring Germany, uh, the, the naive uh, Kaiser who thought that uh, because he w was a descendant of Queen Elizabeth along with the Tsar and the King of England that everything would work out. Uh, and it didn't work out. Uh, and that war was continued. Um, it's called World War II, continuation. Uh, the Thirty Years' War, uh, continuation of that, and it got worse uh, in terms of the casualties. We had the this, this carpet bombing of German cities, deliberate war crimes. Uh, targeting the German people, not, no, no armaments industry. They knew bombs were ineffective against any military targets, so they turned them against civilians. And then the great catastrophe which happened after the war, which was social engineering and the, 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 the concerted attempt <clears throat> to convince the people of Germany that they were guilty of something. And not only that, but guilty of some crime that was so unprecedented in human history that it made everything else pale by comparison. Now, the first thing it made pale by comparison were American and British war crimes, uh, like the firebombing of Dresden and stuff like that. And that was the purpose of it. But it had this effect. And it, it, in order to make that, that was like, a, that was what you wanted to inject into the German soul, the sense of guilt, and what they found out was the social engineers found out that the best way to inject something into your soul is music. But 
and that's what we found out. But there's this, well, maybe you want to do something. Maybe you want to weaponize it. Maybe you want to t- tinker with the DNA here. You know what I mean? Uh, enhanced function uh, for this type of thing. And so you can use music, as Plato understood, to inject uh, passion into the soul. And you can create habits, habits among the people uh, of succumbing to that passion and reaching the point where they become addicted to that passion and then they become slaves. And I talked about libido dominandi the phrase I got from St. Augustine, who said, a man has as many masters as he has vices. That was the hidden grammar of social engineering because after World War II, the Germans uh, were subjected to one of the most vicious forms of uh, pornography as sexual control uh, in history. Uh, And they were helpless to a large extent because they were a conquered nation. Anyway, so we had long conversations about this type of stuff for, for the whole week. And part of the conversation, uh, or part of what I got from the visitors from the Georg, handed me a book. I uh, just got this, Gabriele Kubi, Fürchte dich nicht, du kleine Herde, wenn die Hirten mit den Wölfen tanzen. Do not be afraid, little flock. Uh, what happens when the shepherds dance with the wolves? What is she talking about here? What shepherds is she talking about? She's talking about the German bishops. And she's talking about not the fact that they have been uh, unerringly opposed to all of Catholic sexual morality for the past 200 years uh, and mis- became manifest uh, recently with something called der Synodalweg or the synod, synodality. Uh, during this period of time, the Germans have gone out of their way uh, to basically approve every single perversion and sexual deviation uh, in human history in the name of the church. In the name of the church. And Gabriela Kubi's book uh, talks about that in great detail. Uh, quotes that you simply would not believe uh, that a, would come out of the mouth of a bishop. Um, Too, too much to go into. I'm not going to translate these things in detail. You probably already know what we're talking about. They support homosexuality. They support uh, divorced and remarried, receiving communion. And, and you just have to listen to the jargon to know that these people's minds have been completely taken over. Now, this is not new, okay, to me, because I, I made uh, Gabriela Kubi's acquaintance years ago. Uh, I, when I went to Poland to talk about, uh, to, to do the book tour for Libido Dominandi, the Polish edition of Libido Dominandi, the people would come up to me and they say, uh, is this gender ideology? And I'm thinking, it's the first time I heard the term, gender ideology. And I said, yeah, I think it is. And then they started talking to me about the book. Gabriela Kubi's book uh, on gender ideology had been written in German. And then the, the Polish bishops uh, picked it up, and they did a pastoral letter. Well, Gabriela's book was based on my book. If you read it, she didn't plagiarize it. It's all there. She quoted me chapter and verse. And she quoted Libido Dominandi and talked about that, talked about the book, the whole history of sexual liberation. The Polish bishops 
used it in their pastoral letter. And But what coincided was my book tour with the Polish uh, edition plus the bishop's statement, the, the pastoral letter coming out at around the same time. And I'm often... Argentina, and I get a letter from a poll who says, between your book and the bishop's statement on uh, gender ideology, you destroy gay marriage in Poland. So that's great. I thought this is, this is the way to go, because the Polish bishops stood by me when I was there. There was a huge hue and cry when I got there to get my book tour canceled. The Jews were after me. They called me an anti-Semite. It was like in every headline in every Jewish-controlled paper in Poland. Jones is an anti-Semite. Cancel the book tour. There's going to be violence if you don't do this. Uh, there are hundreds of people heading toward Wrocław, uh, where the next stop on the book tour is. And so I'm thinking, I'm getting nervous because the publisher is getting phone calls every two minutes as we're heading toward the venue. And I go, we get to the war, the, uh, the cathedral in Warsaw. I go into the cathedral and I say a prayer. I come out and there's the chancellor of the archdiocese who says, don't worry. So the church didn't throw me under the bus. And because they didn't throw me under the bus, we had a successful book tour. So I walked into the hall. The hall is full. There's a big hall next to the cathedral. And then after that, the people are lined up all the way around the block for me to sign copies of this, including young couples who came up to me and said, we read your book and we're going to get married. And we're going to have children. That was great. Okay. That's great. Now the polls have a different problem. Now they have the, uh, the last talk I gave was on Russophobia, and that's the problem now because they're now, because of NATO, they're lackeys of NATO, because they don't like Russians, because of the Soviet occupation of Poland. Now they're the, the, the foremost proxy warriors for NATO in this war in the Ukraine. But that's another story. That part was uh, victorious. That was good. So uh, I, I come back and I... If for somehow, I, I, I made contact with Gabriela Kubi. And it was around the time that I had written the uh, piece, the chapter on Heisenberg um, uh, that was going to go into Logos Rising. It is in Logos Rising. We already talked about Vero Heisenberg in the Oppenheimer movie. He, plus, he has a bit role when he should have a major role in that movie, but we already talked about that. And I said... What was happening? What was Werner Heisenberg doing after World War II? What was he doing? He was talking about nuclear weapons. Well, they're real important now, okay? But they weren't real important then. The main thing that was happening in Germany at that time was the corruption of sexual morals and social engineering. And the main vehicle at that time, and I'm talking about, let's say, 1957, 1958, was Alfred Kinsey, the homosexual sexual entomologist from Bloomington, Indiana, who became world famous after he landed on the cover of Time magazine, and I think it was 47, uh, where they tried to put bow tie, crew cut, uh, and they portray him as a Boy Scout. No, he was a flaming homosexual, and he was determined to make homosexuality the norm for America. That's what the Kinsey Report was about. He didn't have any interest in women whatsoever. The whole women's book was a, a kind of afterthought. He wanted to go to gay bars and talk about those, talk to talk dirty to those guys about how they had sex in men's rooms. That's what the Kinsey Report was about, but it wasn't portrayed that way. It was portrayed as science. 
And this is where the whole problem started. You look, read this book, and they're all, the bishops are now talking about, well, we have to conform uh, church teaching to science. Well, what does science mean? We all know what science means now. We've all been through for the COVID thing. Remember that? That was science. If you disagree with Tony Fauci, you're arguing with science. He said that. Well, it was the same thing back then, except nobody knew it. No, people know it now because we've been through the COVID thing. But back then, uh, what does science what does science mean for the German people? It meant any damn thing that showed on the up on the cover of an illustrated magazine, which was the cutting cutting edge of information technology in Germany at that time, because that was the era of the glossy picture. The most famous example of that over here was Playboy. You had glossy pictures of naked women. And that was cutting edge, uh, if you want to, it's not pornography, but it was cutting edge subversion at that point, followed by movies, uh, which were then the cutting edge of subversion. And so at this point, you've got this going on. And how did this happen? You have to look at yourself. This is crazy. And unfortunately, I'm, 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 I, told, I told Gabrielle at that point, I said, could you please pass this on to Pope Benedict, I think he was, no, I think he was retired at that point. So pass it on to Ratzinger. Well, it didn't happen. I was disappointed. But the point of the matter is that uh, there is a dichotomy here, like uh, Benedict trying to save uh, the church. Well, the interesting thing is the use of the word flock. Du kleine Herde, kleine Herde, the little flock, and Hirte, which means shepherd. We know now uh, things have happened since that time. Uh, the first thing that Ratzinger did uh, after he became Pope was told the people of the, the Catholic faithful to pray that I don't flee when the shepherd, when, when the wolves come. He was the top shepherd now. Pray that I don't flee when the wolves come. And then after he fled, <laughs> Spiegel, which I don't like, it's one of those licensed magazines in Germany. It's just an obnoxious, self-righteous socialist. Accused him of Fahnenflucht, desertion under fire. And I, I have to admit they were right, much as I hate to agree with Spiegel. He deserted under fire. When you know, Zewald wrote his biography about the after effect, it's clear that uh, what Rome, the Vatican, it was. They, people were staggering around as if a bomb had just gone off. And the, the telling phrase was, they were wandering out like sheep without a shepherd. That's the crux of the matter. It's Gabriella didn't deal with it. Uh, she also didn't deal with the people uh, who were responsible for this. These things don't happen by themselves. And to get back to those, the Illustrierte Zeitung and Zeitschriften, uh, like Stern, the big glossy magazines, in order to get one, you had to go to the American authorities Oh, wait a minute. There's one guy you have to go to. His name is David Mordecai Levy. He's a Jewish psychiatrist from New York City. And you got to lie down on the couch and you got to say how guilty you feel. What happened over, this is the alchemy, the essence of the alchemy that happened over this period of time. They were persuaded when, 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 the, when the wolves came in Germany in the 50s, pushing pornography of the sort that was being promoted at that time, the shepherds were embarrassed because they had the, the Volkswagen, the Legion of Decency, we talk about schmutz und schund, uh, 
filth and smut. And the illustration we're talking about science. This is science. And they were embarrassed. And they didn't stand up for the moral law. They backed down. They chickened out. And the result is this direct line going back from that backing down, abandoning their legion of decency because they were just too embarrassed by it, all the way to the time of the synod when you have bishops saying it's mandatory to support homosexuality and transgenderism. There's a direct line there, and the one thing that they cannot talk about, that nobody can talk about, is the Jewish responsibility for the subversion of morals in Germany. It's no different than over here. Who's behind pornography over here? Okay, what did Al Goldstein say about Jewish participation in pornography? We do it, he said, because we know that Christ sucks. This is, this is the way they talk. This is what they've done to our country. We had a little more resistance because we were the conqueror and not the conquered. But let's face it, Indiana is a conquered province of the American empire. The entire Midwest is a conquered province and it became a conquered province on December 8th, 1941, when the FBI showed up at Henry Regnery's father's door and took the mailing list for America first. That's when the Midwest, when America first was defeated and they've never recovered, never recovered. We have never recovered. We will never have a situation where someone like Charles Lindbergh can gather 30,000 people in St. Louis or, or Des Moines, Iowa, and have them say, we are not going to get involved in that war. Those days in the Midwest are gone. We are conquered province. And for the consolation prizes, smoking dope in Michigan and watching pornography on your cell phone. That's how you know you're a conquered people. And the conversation has to proceed here. I mean, we have that moment, this moment of conversation, a week-long discussion of the situation in Germany, honest, frank discussion of the sort that has to go forward. It's got to go forward because the alternative is doom for all of us. It may be nuclear war for all of us, because if you put a Jew in head of, ahead of the uh, atomic bomb project, you're going to have problems. And what we have now are the descendants of Oppenheimer, the, the Jews Blinken, and now Newland is under Secretary of State, closer to using atomic weapons than any time in the past since Hiroshima and Nagasaki. That's the situation we're in right now. We have to address that issue. Thank God that we have some type of great vocabulary of German culture to draw upon this. But this conversation has to go forward because if it doesn't, we're in trouble. We're in trouble right now. It's got to go forward. Someone's got to get these hands, the hands of the, the, this Jewish cabal off the steering wheel known as American foreign policy before they drive it off a cliff. That's my rant. Thank you. Let's, let's hear what you have to say. All right. Hello again. Uh, my name is Mike Bajakis, Dr. Jones' assistant. Uh, for a little upkeeping for you guys, if you guys are first joining us, uh, this call-in section of the show, um, for anyone who's on Rumble or Odyssey or what have you, links are in description to find that uh, Telegram chat where you can call in and ask the questions. Um, Telegram, I'm going to call on those who raise their hand. And then later in the stream, uh, we'll read off questions from uh, Cozy, Rumble, Odyssey, what have you. Uh, try to keep questions on subject. Try to keep to one question, be respectful of time, and do not forget to unmute yourself. People have been telling me that's becoming my catchphrase. Don't forget to unmute. 
Okay, let's go. Uh, telegram, here we are. First caller is going to be uh, Quentin. Go ahead, Quentin. Hi, Dr. Jones. How are you? Good. Good. How are you? Um, well, thank you. So, um, if this is too off a non sequitur, then by all means, you know, rein me in. But little did I know that a lot of the um, exporting of Zen Buddhism and kind of this ecumenical culture that's infiltrated the Protestant churches kind of came out of Germany, post-war Germany, through Karl Fried Graf Durkheim, um, who was this weird hodgepodge of um, spent time in Japan during the war, was later imprisoned, then came back and kind of got rehabilitated as a, a transformational integrative psychologist. And all, you know, this, uh, you mentioned before how Buddhism in the West is kind of used, was it I, the two gentlemen, if you can't remember, kind of used to cover up sexual immorality but yeah, what do you know about Graf Durkheim? What are your thoughts on that whole? Um, I don't know anything. I don't know anything about Graf Durkheim. I do know that uh, that uh, the Germans were attracted to the East, uh, and I think uh, Buddhism or Hinduism or whatever. Uh, I I have a friend, a German friend, who spent years with the Bhagwan in Pune. Uh, um, why he did that? Because he said he felt guilty. Well, if, if you're guilty, you should go to confession. He wasn't a Catholic, so that, that was a problem there. He had problems with the whole uh, uh, post-World War II period, relationship with his father, and so on and so forth. So he went to the Bhagavan. What is, what is the attraction there? It's spirituality without morality. It's spirituality without the cross. They can't bring themselves to go back to their own spirituality of German spirituality, which is the Catholic Church, and then to a certain extent the Lutheran Church after the Reformation, uh, because the, those wells have been poisoned by the war. It's the, you're a Nazi if you do if you think uh, the Germans should be spiritual. This is precisely what happened during this period of time. Anyone who stood up for the moral law was immediately demonized as a Nazi during this period of time. It, it started gradually, you know, first of all, it's someone uh, who was in the SS. Well, he was in the SS, so he, blah, that's bad. And then it got to be, well, maybe he was in the Wehrmacht. That, that's even bad. Then at a certain point, it just became free association. In other words, if you said something they didn't like, that was ipso facto proof that you were a Nazi. And the culmination is, Canada, Hong Kong equals Heil Hitler, where now anything you do, if they want to get rid of you, they will accuse you of being a Nazi or an anti-Semite to shut you up. That happened in Germany first, and I'm saying that the German reaction of the church was too defensive. I'm talking about the transition that took place between Frings, Cardinal Frings, who was totally a product of pre-war Germany, and his peritus, Joseph Ratzinger. A a who grew, a was uh, a product of the social engineering after the war. That's what happened there. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Next, we have Chicago talk show host. Go ahead, Chicago. Hello, Dr. Jones. Coming at you from uh, Camping Out in Wisconsin. Are you familiar with, when you brought up the Kinsey Institute, uh, the works, the infamous works of Dr. John Money? Yeah, he's the father of transgenderism. He ended up at exactly. a, 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 he ended up at Johns Hopkins. He is the one who defined gender as a social construct, and then Johns Hopkins went on to get rich uh, by mutilating children. 
which is uh, what goes on now in, with these people. You persuade them that they're, 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 you know, you've got this adolescent problem here and they persuade you that it's your uh, real identity is your uh, the opposite gender and then they mutilate you and make a lot of money. So yeah, I know, I know who John Money is. I, I believe he was associated with the Kinsey Institute. That's right. So the Kinsey Institute, as you pointed out, they, they, they actually guard his paperwork. And instead of being um, uh, de continually denounced for his awful treatment of the infamous case of the Reimer twins, where this they botched the circumcision, and then they tried to make this boy who was born a boy, a girl, and dressed him in girls' clothes. And he was ridiculed throughout his life. And him and his brother suffered throughout their lives with depression and they were, they were, he purposely told the parents not to tell him that he was actually born a boy. And so it took him years to, and he was devastated to find out, but actually he was relieved because the truth shall set you free that he was indeed born a boy. Right. Um, I just wanted to share that as well with you. Thank yeah. You. Yeah. You're welcome. No, the Kinsey, let, let's get straight here. The Kinsey Institute is a completely phony, anti-scientific uh, propaganda operation. Completely phony. I mean, I've done research at uh, the Rockefeller Archives. That's the real deal. They will help you out. They will help you understand things. There was a, a, a librarian, that I think, uh, by the name of Rosenberg, who was there. He helped me a lot uh, in doing research there. I showed up at the Kinsey Institute, and I said, uh, I'd, I'd like to see a list of the films produced by the Kinsey Institute. The lady immediately tells me, oh, the Kinsey Institute never produced any films. I said, I pulled out a brochure. It says here, a list of films produced by the Kinsey Institute is available upon request. And she goes, oh, oh. And then she runs into the back room and the director, some, I don't, some Englishman at that point, he comes out and gives me a lot of blah, blah, blah. It's a totally phony operation and it should be defunded. I talked, I, I talked to B. Patrick Bauer, who was, uh, ran the Democratic, was head of the Democrats in the uh, uh, Indiana State Legislature, said, defund this operation. It's a completely phony propaganda thing, and it doesn't have service, not, no scientific pro, uh, purpose. He didn't listen to me, so maybe it'll be defunded later on. But it's a completely bogus operation. They've lied continually from the beginning. The Kinsey Report is nothing but lies. The Statisticians Association of America pointed out these lies immediately after the book came out and said, you can't have a, this is not a representative survey. Ten guys who you just interviewed coming out of a men's room at a gay bar is not a, a representative survey of uh, uh, sexuality anywhere, and certainly not in the United States in 1942 or whenever they did it. So it's been bogus from the beginning, and the Germans fell for it hook, line, and sinker. Tragedy. All right. Uh, thank you, uh, Chicago Talk Show host. If you guys don't know, he actually is uh, a podcast on YouTube. Just put in uh, Chicago Talk, Talk Show host on YouTube, and uh, you find a lot of good content coming from him. Good guy. Next, we have William B. Go ahead, William. You there, William? Don't forget to unmute. Little button right in the center. Oh, hello. Hello. Um, I wanted to uh, tell you, I know I've seen you discuss this before, but I was actually in Germany pretty recently and I spoke with a couple Bavarians who were um, doing their equivalent of a bachelor party. I asked them uh, where 
the groom was getting married and they, they laughed at me um, that, of course, they're not getting married in a church. Um, and they immediately went to the fact that they said that the Catholic Church is full of um, child molesters. So you see this across countries, America, Ireland, Germany, that people use this as a thin veil to uh to hide their own immorality, to say, oh, look, that the Catholic Church is this evil institution. How can that be addressed? Because that seems like such an effective, effective lie about the Catholic Church wherever you go in the world. Uh, first of all, it's selective prosecution. Secondly, when they do do it, uh, it turns out that it's no different than any other institution. So if you went and uh, did uh, pedophilia in the post office, you'd probably find the same percentage as, as in the Catholic Church. If you went to the Boy Scouts, it would be off the charts. It would be off the charts. And they solved that problem by turning the Boy Scouts into a homosexual grooming operation. So, uh, but what, what happened in, in Germany is, uh, sure, there was sexual immorality. If you, these are cultural things. You behave largely because of the way your culture determines things. Now, the culture should be informed by the church, and it certainly was informed by the Catholic Church in Bavaria. It was a Catholic country. Uh, but if you undermine sexual morality, everyone's going to be affected. The entire level will, will go down, and that includes the clergy. So, of course, and then, of course, you got a problem specifically to the Catholic Church of the uh, celibate clergy, which means it, it's a magnet for homosexuals, especially, and this is point, one of the things that Gabriella Kubi does go into in the book, is they're especially vulnerable to homosexual networks, uh, where the one homosexual gets in and hires, uh, brings in others as seminarians and so forth, and suddenly you get a group of people that, it does not to mean every priest is a homosexual, but you get a group of people who are in positions of control who determine the way things are, and you can't, uh, uh, protest against it. So that that's the problem. So it was a problem. There was a problem here across the board. So how do, how do they deal with it? Is the zenodal vague? They say, well, it's the church was the problem. It's not the, ch the church people. It's the church's teaching. It's because the, 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 the church teaches that uh, sexuality is only legitimate when it's in marriage uh, between a man and a woman open to new life, open to procreation. That caused so much trauma. I mean, people were, oh my God, you mean I got to get married? I, you mean I can have sex in a men's room? Well, I, I'm damaged and, and, and the church is at fault and you owe it to me now to change it, to make me feel better. That is the logic of the, the synod in Germany and it shows that the people who are running it uh, have sexual problems <laughs> and they're they're trying to get out they're trying to engage in this type of weird virtue signaling to distract everyone from the the fact that their sexual morality is going down the drain all right thank you so much for that question um oh we uh you want to want to ask we have a we have a studio audience today and uh we're gonna take a question from someone in the studio go go ahead Good evening, Dr. Jones. Thank you as always, and it's always a pleasure. So at the end of your lecture, you said that the Jewish hands must be ripped off the steering wheel. And the question is, who's going to do the ripping? <laughs> That's and, a good question. Right. I think it's that, easy. It's easy for me to say. I'm saying, oh, we're going to put the bell on the cat. Well, that's a great idea. Who's going to do it? Now, this you're talking about someone talking here in the realm of ideas. I'm not a politician. 
A politician is the man who says, I know how to do it. I'll do this. Well, that's, we're waiting for that guy. So the, who was the great white hope for about 15 minutes? It was Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Until uh, the Jews went after him uh, because he said something about DNA and the Jews didn't get COVID or something like that. They immediately called him an anti-Semite. And then, so that's, it's good cop, bad cop. They're the bad cop. Then the good cop is Rabbi Shmuley. He comes in and says, no, he's not an anti-Semite. And he, Kennedy walks off and immediately wraps himself an Israeli flag around him and marches in a parade. These are the people that have to come up with the solution, the political solution. And there, these are the people that have to break through this horrible boy, monopoly that IPAC has over the legislature. Uh, uh, they're the ones who do it. Now, if you want my suggestion, uh, a good place to start would be anyone with dual loyal, dual citizenship, Israel and the United States, should not be allowed to have public office. I've gone further than that. I think what I've said about the Biden administration is, if you look at Merrick Garland, this is proof that you can't have a Jew as head of the Justice Department. Because as soon as you put him in, he will start prosecuting the enemies of his own people. These people, the Jewish people, are constitutionally incapable of representing the interest of the American people. They cannot do it, and so they should not be allowed to have political office. Now, there's a man, uh, to show you the difference between the United States and America, there's a man by a Pierre Iard in um, France. He happens to be the man who translated, wrote the foreword to the French edition of Libido Dominandi. He just said pretty much what I just said, except that he couched it in terms directly relevant to France, where he said basically Jews were never citizens until Napoleon took over. He was the first leader in Europe to make Jews citizens. And he said, the experience has shown that it doesn't work. And we have to go back to the time uh, uh, before Napoleon, when every country realized that Jews could not be citizens. That was universally accepted at that point. Well, he's, he, they're threatening to throw him in jail now. And they're threatening to, to uh, ban the political party that he's part of. So uh, I'm just saying this to say, first of all, it's a political issue how you do this. And secondly, I'm saying this is what you're up against when you frame it in political terms. In a sense, they can let me, oh, this go, who's that old guy there spouting off? Well, let him spout off. Nobody pays any attention to him anyway. As soon as you put some, some type of political program together, the shit hits the fan. And that's what just happened in France. I think you really got to the heart of the matter there, and that was going to be my follow-up, because I think there, there's a, a running debate out there about whether the solution is political or ecclesiastical, or fr from which source does the solution flow? In, in other words, maybe is culture downstream from politics, or is our politics downstream from culture? Uh, do, we, do we storm the church and restore the church to then feed into uh, our, our political solution, or does the... the uh, does the political bleed over into the church and put the fear of God back in the church men? Um, so I, first I of all, we're raised in a country where we have de facto, the de facto separation of church and state, even though it's not in the constitution or any place else. Okay. And we've, we've been trained to check our religious guns at the door whenever we enter the, 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 the debate room. That's wrong. Okay. There are, there's an obvious connection between religion and, uh, and culture and religion and, uh, uh, and the, the state, uh, the, the political solution. But I've, I've said from the beginning, uh, if you, if you want to, if you want to 
you know, pick up a spear and charge the machine gun nest, do it as a white boy. I'm telling you, if you play into their hands by using some type of racial argument, you're going to get mowed down. And the proof of that was Charlottesville. I don't have to give you any more proof that Jewish lawyer lady has been making life miserable for people who are simply exercising their constitutional right to assemble and free speech. I have had the opposite experience. I just, uh, just a, a, a little while ago, the ADL went after me again, and they said, oh, we used to say he's, he's not a racist, but here, listen to this. Jones said Jews have bad DNA. And then Mike posted the actual video where I said, uh, this is what tr classic anti-Semitism is. They say Jews have bad DNA. Of course, they got caught with their pants down. It was so stupid. I don't know what they were thinking, and they had to back down. And I'm saying there's a lesson to be learned there. Okay, the church is in a terrible state, okay? But the church is not the, uh, let's say the bishops are not the church. The church is a supernatural entity. And we had that experience on the Assumption, the Feast of the Assumption. Uh, we, the bishop came to St. Pat's Church. There's a bit of trepidation. I'm there. What's the bishop going to say? Is he going to denounce the... Uh, I think among you you folk, the rumor was circulated and he came that he was going to excommunicate me. Well, it didn't happen. We shook hands. Everything's fine, you know. We talked about... Uh, he spoke a little German. I saw the der bishop, der spricht ein ausgezeichnetes Deutsch. That was a little bit of an exaggeration, but it was nice. It was a nice little meeting. Thanks to Father Cyril, who, has a, who is a genius when it comes to human uh, uh, relations. But let me cut, cut to the chase here. I don't, I'm not a man who talks about his own uh, inner religious experiences a lot, uh, but I'm going to tell you I had, they're talking about the gospel, is talking about the womb. A lot of talk about wombs, you know, like the uh, the baby leaps in Elizabeth's womb because the womb of Mary is carrying the, and I thought, Suddenly I thought of myself as, well, the church is our mother. It's Holy Mother Church. And I suddenly thought of myself, I'm in the womb of Holy Mother Church. And because of that, I'm protected in a way that I would not be otherwise. And the fact that I've gotten away with this so long, and the fact that the Jews just made asses out of themselves by trying to make me into a racist, is a sign of that protection, and that's a sign to everyone else. No matter how bad things are in Germany with there's a nodal vague, the church is still our mother, and the mother, if you're in the womb of your mother, you're protected. Thank you very much, Dr. Jones. God you're bless. welcome. All right. Good questions from the studio audience. Going back to Telegram here, we're going to ask uh, one or two more, then jump to the chat. Everybody in Cozy, Rumble, what have you, go ahead and start asking your questions now. All right, a couple more here. Uh, where was it? Joe? Go ahead, Joe. And you there? You're unmuted. Can't hear you. Uh, nope, not gonna work. All right, that's all right, Joe. Next time. Um, let's see, Sunshine Kid. Go ahead, Sunshine. Hello, Dr. Jones. Is my audio okay? Yes, I can hear you loud and clear. Okay. I recently bought some of your books and I've uh, started off with uh, Dionysus Rising. I uh, finished the book and enjoyed it very much. 
Um, however, there has been some uh, disagreement uh, with historians on uh, the, the fact whether or not uh, Friedrich Nietzsche went insane due to uh, syphilis or a brain tumor. Do you, do you think your, uh, your thesis you uh, advance in, your, in that particular book, does it hinge entirely on whether or not Nietzsche did in fact um, went insane due to syphilis or not? No, that's not that's not doesn't hinge on that. He was a he was a devotee of Wagner. He played Tristan Isolde and Isolde on the piano. He was drawn to Wagner because of Tristan and Isolde, and he he repudiated Wagner when Wagner turned away from the Venusberg and and prostrated himself before the cross. I think that's how he portrayed uh, Wagner's Parsifal. So it, you know, it's the the fact. I said he deliberately infected himself with syphilis because uh, Peter Gast, who was a friend of his, said that's what Nietzsche told him. And Thomas Mann believed it. He was, he was part of that crowd. And Thomas Mann wrote uh, Dr. Faustus with that as its premise, that there was going to be some type of great... When syphilis goes to your brain, you get delusions of grandeur. Tertiary syphilis goes to the brain, you get delusions of grandeur. And uh, you get the feeling that you're going to create some type of great work. If you want another an example of this, uh, you can read Bram Stoker, not so much uh, Dracula, but the lair of the white, white worm. That's the uh, palladium, treponema palladium, the pale worm or the white worm is uh, syphilis. Uh, and he, the man, the character, is, has these feelings of electricity going through his body. I think that the, you get this sense from the uh, the later writings of Nietzsche, like why I write such great books. You get the sense that he's, there's some type of burst uh, of electricity. It's like the light bulb just before it goes out. It burns. We don't have these light bulbs anymore. But it burns really bright and then it burns out. That's the premise of Dr. Uh, Faustus by, by uh, Thomas Mann. Anyway, it's not essential to my thesis because we know that uh, the thesis was uh, Nietzsche's attraction to Tristan and Isolde, and Nietzsche is a stand-in. As Thomas, Ma Ma Thomas Mann said, the ent his entire class of people, like the upper-class intellectuals, were all taken over by Wagner's idea of sexual liberation. They all went to see. He said he saw Va uh, Tristan 20 times or something like that. So it's not essential to my thesis. All right, thank you. I look forward to reading your other words. Thank you. All right, we're gonna do uh, one more here and then jump to chat questions. Who's gonna be last here? Let's see. Where is it? Sauset Duval? Something like that. Sauset, go ahead. Hi, uh, Dr. Jones. This is Eve from France. Happy to talk to you. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Welcome. Thank you. I uh, just wanted to bring some uh, more details on this uh, Pierre Hila uh, Good, good. I'm glad you called. Th tell us what you know. So, um, this was a kind of a, a summer university of this uh, movement called Civitas in France, which is uh, conservative and uh, want wanting to restore um the social order in christ and uh so they they are very uh it's it's not very uh popular it's a very small uh, margin uh, of, of of right 
and uh, they, they had uh, Pierre Hilar invited. So Pierre Hilar is the forward writer of uh, the Jewish revolutionary spirit. Not, uh, okay, I'm sorry. Movie. I apologize. I don't know which book I'm talking about. Okay, thank you for clarifying that. And so uh, the subject was on the Satanism, you know, on this uh, summer university. And uh, Pierre Hilar wa was just uh, commenting on uh, his new book, uh, re being released uh, at the moment about uh, the influence of occultism in uh, Russia throughout the times. Uh, so that's quite uh, fascinating. Uh, and so he had a kind of uh, an annex, uh, a word on the side about about the Jews in, in, uh, in France with Napoleon. Uh, and so there was a snitch in the audience, apparently. And this niche uh, had uh, tweeted this uh, this little passage um, in uh, Twitter, and so it was uh, echoed by um, the leftists. Uh, uh, and so the leftists wanted to have a uh, their, um, their, how would you say to 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 buy a, a new white coat because they have some uh, they have some. Um, things to be um, to be um, redeemed of about anti-Semitism because they have a lot of uh, they are very uh, pro-Islamic people and so they are kind of uh, anti-Jewish anti-Jewish uh, uh, anti rants okay. uh, from their side so they, so they wanted to buy a new coat uh, at, at very few expense so they they asked for the the executive to uh, to indict uh, Civitas and Pierilla and to cancel the the movement Civitas they wanted to cancel Civitas and uh, nearly uh, the next the, the same day uh, the, the government uh, said okay we are going to cancel Civitas so it's on the process I don't okay okay let me ask you a right. let me ask you a question Alain Soral was persecuted he and Dieu Donnet had this egalité at uh, Reconciliation. Alain yeah. Soral had to go into exile. He's in exile in Switzerland. Do you think that Pierre yeah. Iyad is in a better position than Alain Soral because he's taking a specifically Catholic position? Do you think he's in a better position because of that? I think Alain uh, Pierre Hilaire is well, well more uh, armed to say. Uh, um, I don't know if my word is correct. Well, well uh, far more prepared than Alain Soral because it's a scholar. Pierre Hilar is a scholar, so he's, he has a lot of background, and he can uh, argue uh, very, very uh, vividly or very uh, fiercely against any uh, any contradictor. So, the, so they're going to have a problem if ever. Yeah, that, the problem, there's, there's going to be a factual problem, and we've already discussed this, that uh, before Napoleon, no no uh, Jew was ever a citizen. That's a fact. Is he going to go to jail because he stated a fact? No, no, I don't think, I think he's going to, to fight back very, very, um, very closely. And the, the important point, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not uh, afraid about Pierre Hilar. I think he's going to make it. Uh, I think the, the government uh, got into a, 
is going to go into a dire strait if it goes all along right. with the prosecution. I think, I think that the Macron is in a very weak position right now, uh, especially with the, yeah. the, the, ins the insurrection in Africa, the French uh, colonies insurrection. Uh, the war in the Ukraine is not going well. He's in a very weak position, and it would be foolish of him to, to do this. But that's the way I see it. Anyway, Eve, thank, thanks for calling. Thanks for letting us know. Thank you. Merci. Uh, just just uh, the, the last word is uh, what was very uh, interesting was the, the kind of uh, uh, line it created in the, in the right movement between the people who supported Pierre Hillard and the one who wanted to to get away from their position, you know, and uh, that was a kind of a clear clear cut uh, clear cut separation. That was very interesting uh, in, in in this manner. That's yeah. what I wanted to say. Thank you, thank you, Eve. Thank you. Now we're gonna jump to questions from the chat. All right, let's go uh, rumble here first, real quick. Uh, where was it? Ah, question from Catulus. Uh, doctor, uh, besides praying, is there a strategy that we, as laity, can do to help stop the Jewish church or the Jewish control in the church? Yes, yes. All action depends on consciousness. You have to raise your consciousness. And then at some point, the action will become clear. Prudence is, first of all, the ability to recognize the truth and then the ability to act on it. But the ability to recognize the truth come first and then the ability to act on it. So it, it, uh, uh, pr prayer is not a substitute for action. People make this mistake. You know, I don't do anything. It's magic. I just say a prayer and everything happens. The best example I can give of that is the Battle of Lepanto. Now, every pious Catholic knows that during the Battle of Lepanto, the Pope was praying the rosary. So, therefore, the rosary will win any battle. Well, wait a minute. There were, there were soldiers on those ships, ships uh, fighting the Turks at that time. You didn't win it. You know, of course, it's a spiritual battle. Of course, the Pope was praying the rosary. But you all had people like... Uh, uh, Cervantes, the author of Don Quixote, was fighting fighting the Turks on the ships. So you have to bring both of these things into alignment if you want effective work. The other, that's that's I think that's the key to to a successful operation. The like in I said I've already mentioned Poland. It was the support of the church. I was in the womb of Holy Mother Church when I was in Poland. And I think that's why it was successful. If they had thrown me under the bus, you know, it would have been a different story. I tried to extrapolate to Australia when the people in Australia called me up and said, we want to fight the gay, gay marriage thing. I said, sure, uh, let's do it together with the bishops. Put me in contact with the bishops. So I had a conversation with one of the bishops. He wouldn't say it to my face, but as soon as he got off, he said, this guy's an anti-Semite. I can't work with him. Well, guess what? Guess what? They have gay marriage in Australia, but they don't have gay marriage in Poland. So if you want a sexual collaboration, it's between, uh, you know, work and pray, the mind and uh, faith and reason together. Uh, from Rumble, let's see, this is Statululu. Dr. Jones, what's your opinion uh, about that in the last two months that the supposedly right-wing Georgia Maloney uh, Mawarikek and Viktor Orban almost simultaneously declared that, quote, we need more immigrants? I can't imagine anyone would say that. 
I can't. Either Giorgio Maloney is a tool of the old, uh, of the Zionists, uh, but I can't imagine her saying that. This must be a false rumor. I can't imagine uh, Victor Orban saying something like that. I, I can't imagine unless there's a context that I'm not understanding. Uh, whoever sent that chat, uh, send in some context uh, so we can look into that. But uh, all right, um, from Rumble. Uh, hello from Romania. They're not Rumble, Odyssey. Hello from Romania. Uh, Dr. Jones, uh, what is your vision of the Eastern Europe uh, taking into consideration the deliberate crushing or implosion of the Western Europe? You've got to get out of NATO. This was a big mistake. There's that you've got to get out of NATO. And so for once, I'm in total agreement with the platform of the Communist Party in Germany, which is raus aus NATO und Frieden mit Russland. So out of NATO and peace with Russia. That is the way forward. And the, the, the leader so far in Eastern Europe is, is Viktor Orban, who understands that his first responsibility is to the Hungarian people. We have to go back to a situation where governments represent their own people instead of the oligarchic class and oligarchic interest uh, as they support the American empire. The American empire is going down, okay? I hope it's a peaceful uh, end, but I don't know, okay? But sooner or later, we're going to have to go back to the default setting, which is basically that the Hungarian government represents the interest of the Hungarian people. It's that simple. From Cozy, uh, WK Worldwide, question, is there still a plan for a second edition of Libido Dominion? Yes, it's in the, it's, we've already, we're going to send it to the printer. It's ready. One of the things I have to say about that is the, the speech I gave based on that thesis began with me describing uh, the Israelis occupying Ramallah, taking over Palestinian TV stations and broadcasting pornography over those stations. I gave that talk all over Iran. I gave it in Switzerland. I gave it in America. And it's not in the first edition. It's not there because it happened one year after Libido Dominandi came out. So in terms of being the prophet and predicting this is perfect, it's a total vindication of everything I said in Libido Dominandi done by the Israelis themselves. Uh, and that will be in the uh, the second edition, which is ready to go to the printer. And also all of the stuff that 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 book was printed in 2003. This is 20 years, uh, 20 years ago. OK, a lot of water over the dam since then. And that's what will be covered in, in the subsequent articles in the book. So, yes, it will be out soon. Inshallah. All right. A question from Rumble. I'm kind of putting two questions here together because it's basically the same thing. Um, Dr. Jones, uh, what is uh, your uh, thought on Protestants converting to orthodoxy? And uh, do you think that they desire to return to Catholicism but can't bring themselves to convert because of Protestant anti-Catholic propaganda? And on top of that, what's your opinion on Eastern Orthodoxy? Yes, I think you're right. I think that's exactly right. And, and uh, I know the situ situation in Germany. I've already described it. I know people who were converting to orthodoxy in 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 um, in Germany, orthodoxy has nothing to do with German history. There was a thousand years of German history where everyone was Catholic. That is the tradition. So guess why? Guess why it's not happening? I've already explained why. Because you've had the total corruption of the German clergy who are now shills for transgenderism. It's a catastrophe. 
uh, and and that's why the the conversions are being blocked. The 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 Protestant Church is primarily the the Lutheran Church is basically empty. More it's empty. They they're gone. They've ran they ran out of steam. That what they had is what they took from the Catholic Church, the patrimony of the Catholic Church. And after 500 years, it's like a bottle of whiskey without a stopper in it. It'll evaporate, and it evaporated. And so the, it's empty, an empty shell, and people have left it. But they're not going over to Catholicism because the church is not preaching the gospel. The church in Germany is not preaching the gospel. Why should they go over? There's, there's one thing it said. One of the things that the anecdotes in there that uh, Gabriella Kubi brought up was, uh, well, you can't blame uh, people for leaving the church because the bishops aren't proclaiming the gospel. So don't consider it a sin. Maybe you should give them communion. So anyway, that's the situation. It's got, there's got to be a return. This is exactly what Eve said. It's the difference between Pierre Eyal and uh, Alain Soral. It's the difference between the white boys and the Catholics. You're, if, you're a, if you're a Catholic, you're, you're protected to some extent because there is a constitutional right to be a Catholic. And we all saw this. I don't know whether you saw it, but when Josh Hawley went after Merrick Garland, he backed down. Okay? Because, hey, you can't, oh, I don't know. No, no, I didn't do that. Well, of course they did. The FBI was targeting Catholics because Mar Merrick Garland is a Jew and because the Jew goes after his enemies whenever he gets a, uh, in a, a, uh, an office. But you put him in public and you hold his feet to the fire, he backs down immediately. Okay, so imagine, let's go back and say, Josh Hawley says to Merrick Garland, well, you're persecuting white people, aren't you? What would, what would Merrick Garland say? Oh, yeah, yeah, because they're all racist. Do you see the difference? I mean, even the, even the dullest mind out there should be able to see a difference here and that you've got more chances of success with the Catholic Church than you do without it. Uh, from uh, Woke Art, uh, question. What are your thoughts on Slavoj Zizek? Uh, I've run into him a lot. Uh, of leftists seem to be praising him online. I have no idea who he is. I, I'm, I'm sure it's a fault of mine, but I don't know who he is, and I have I, I have no idea what he what he's proposing. Uh, from Kappa Mikey Groiper, uh, did you see Representative Max Miller going after that woman for professing the gospel? No, I didn't see it. Uh, from Kingfish AF, uh, Dr. Jones, uh, what would you say to Catholics who say being gay is not a sin, but acting on it is? Well, of course it's not a sin. <laughs> if you don't act on it, it can't be a sin. So if I if I walk by a bar, do I commit a sin? Am I, do I commit the sin of drunkenness by walking by a bar? I, this, is, this has become relevant because I just got a... a People are still freaking out over what I said about the sex scenes in Oppenheimer. And so the guy says to me, uh, pornography, the existence of pornography is an occasion of sin. But watching pornography is sin. No. What are you talking about? If, if you don't look at it, how can it be an occasion of sin? 
And obviously, if it exists and you don't look at it, it doesn't have any doesn't have any moral relevance whatsoever. I mean, to you, obviously, it has social moral relevance, but it should be banned and so on and so forth. But it has no relevance. People have created this weird fetish around this thing. It's an occasion of sin if you watch it, which means you will probably be led in. It, we've been through this thing before. You know, there are proximate occasions of sin and there are remote occasions of sin. You know, and, and uh, I'm saying that there's a kind of sliding scale here. You know, that uh, when you when uh, Howard Hughes brought, uh, brought out the outlaw, the occasion of sin, the, the, the uh, problem was, uh, um, ooh, I forget her name, uh, Jane Russell's breast. But she's wearing a dress, which is a low-cut dress. That was, that was a significant issue back then. It's not a significant issue now. You know, so I'm saying it, it, it changes over time, but it's it's the it's an occasion of sin, and people are just a, the the Eric Salmon completely uh, missed that in his in his uh, diatribe, his virtue signaling diatribe in crisis. All right, Doc, it's uh, six oh five. Want to do a couple more here? Yeah, let's have two more questions. All right, uh, from uh, any more from the audience here from the Peanut Gallery? Peanut Gallery, hello, anything? You think of something? You, you can get the last one. You can get the last one. Uh, one coming from the audience here soon. Uh, let's see. Rumble uh, from John Devine. Question. I'm reading uh, Bernardo Diaz's memoir of the war against the Mexican Empire. Where do you see the conquest of New Spain in the history of Logos? Was Cortes a type of Joshua? Thanks. Yes. Yes. That's a great book, by the way. A great book. A, a tremendous account of one of the most fascinating and powerful events in human history, which is basically when the Spanish conquistador meets up with the Aztec uh, empire. And uh, if you have, there was a, uh, when I was in Argentina, they had a statue to the Sp to Spanish culture, basically, and it's the conquistador and it's the Franciscan monk. And they are both irrelevant to this question of the um, Aztec Empire. The Aztec Empire had to be removed by military force. There was no question about it. It was a completely evil empire that had enslaved and was murdering all of the native tribes there. And Cortes was, is one of the most heroic figures in human history. A man who just showed up there uh, with a hundred, what do you have, a hundred men and horses. They had, they had, the Aztecs had never seen horses. They had never seen steel. Uh, they had uh, hatchets made out of uh, that volcanic glass, I forget the name of it, which was sharp the first time and then useless the second time you hit someone with it. And they had gunpowder. And they tried to bargain with uh, Cortez. They were, look, let's be honest, they were, they were there to get gold. That's why the conquistador was there. That's why Philip II or whoever it was sent him there. And that was their mission. But they brought the, uh, the Franciscans with them. And at this point, at the first engagement, the one that Bernal Diaz describes, it had to be military force. Sometimes the evil is so deep-rooted that only violence, military force, can, can uproot it. And this was one of those cases. And after that, there's a moment of pause. Okay, the, 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 the scenes of that, Prescott uh, took Diaz and wrote a great classic American book uh, about the conquest of Mexico. And there's this scene where suddenly it, it goes sideways and Montezuma gets killed and now they got to get out of Dodge. And it's midnight and they're caught, the, Mexico is city is a, in the middle of a lake and there's a causeway across the lake and it's dark and they 
pulled up the bridges, the wooden bridges over the gaps in the causeway. And the, all of the conquistadors are just loaded down with gold and they jump in the water and they sink right to the bottom because they're too heavy. And one after one, until finally the bodies pile up on top of each other and the last conquistador steps over the bodies of the dead conquistadors and heads out. And they finally make it out. There's a huge snakeskin drum beating in the background and the Aztecs are ready to mobilize. And they finally make it out and there are 100 guys left. And Diaz says there wasn't one who wasn't wounded. And at this point, Cortez turns around and says, we're going back. Didn't do it right away, but he said, we're going to go back. And to make sure that they were on board, he burned all the ships. So we're going back and we're going, and he did it. It's an incredible story. It's one of the greatest stories in human history. You'll never have another story like that. And I, I was, to be honest with you, I was disappointed when Mel Gibson did Apocalypto because that's not the story of that, of that movie. I thought Mel Gibson could have done a better movie if he just stuck with Bernal Diaz. Anyway, great book. So I think that's, we have one more question. Okay, from the peanut gallery. Thank you again, Dr. Jones, for this incredible program. Uh, I, I, for one, really appreciate the ability to be able to interact with you personally. Um, and I think there's a, a, an impressive craving for that. Uh, it's, it's one thing to read your works and be able to engage with you that way, but the ability to have a conversation with you is a truly special thing, and this program's uh, made that possible. So thank you. Uh, as for my question, um, I think a lot of us uh, lay people, we have this knowledge, we have this, this conscientiousness, and we've read your work and we understand the issues. Um, the real issue is that we're shackled by capital. We have a gun to our heads and we can't speak out in our, you know, as a, whether you're a professional, white collar, blue collar, lawyer, doctor, worker, whatever it may be, uh, you have to live your life according to the rules of the system or your life will end and you will have uh, shooed your duty to your family in a lot of cases. Not everyone's a Dr. Jones and can put his work and his name out there and, and take the flack that you have. So what are we to do? What's your advice to us, average lay people out there just doing what we can to survive while also fighting back against the system? Okay, first of all, do not, I, I, I know that you've done this, I'm preaching to the choir here, but you, you've, you got married, I was at your wedding, you have a, a child, I think, or maybe you have more than one now, I don't know. Another one on the way. Another one on the way. So that's, that's perfect. That's what you have to do. You have to get yourself situated in life. And then at that point, you will start off with your career. And uh, I did the same thing. Uh, and God blessed my intentions by getting me fired from St. Mary's College, which was the best thing that ever happened to me. Now, I'm not, you know, that happened to me because that's my, that was my destiny, Okay. Uh, and it was good and it allowed me to do what, what I'm doing now. But I'm saying that uh, I don't know whether that's your destiny, but I know everyone's got some type of plan. There's a plan for your life. God understands the complexity of the situation. And I can't tell you what it is because it's your life. And you'll be, you'll be in a situation where uh, you'll see the opportunity. And you have to act on the opportunity when you see it because we're talking about prudence. You have to understand the truth, which is, means concretely the truth of your situation. And once you understand the situation and you see a moment of opportunity, you have to act on it. You have to act. And this is the whole gist of my, the story I told about Nathaniel Hawthorne, a great writer, 
a, a great family man. God rewarded him for his faithfulness and brought him to Rome. A, a pure a descendant of the Puritans goes all the way to Rome, brought him to St. Peter's Basilica, brought him to the confessional in St. Peter's Basilica, and he couldn't go in. And he died an unhappy man. That was the whole gist of that, that uh, the funeral, where Henry Wadsworth Longfellow wrote this elegiac poem about the fact that this was a man who died in gloom. But we couldn't act. It's that simple. You've got to act, and you will know. You will know, and I can't tell you when it's going to be because you're, that's your life, not my life. My, and, and you're at a different position in your life than I am in mine. But I, I went through that. You know, I went through it. And the, 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 the moment that it happened, it wasn't, it wasn't pleasant. But now I, I realize it's the best thing that ever happened to me. So I'm, I, I can't give you the answer because I'm not living your life. You're living your life. But it'll be there. And you'll know it when it comes. Thank you, Dr. Jones. You're welcome. All right. Thanks again, everybody. This is another episode of EMJ Live. Every Friday at 5, we're doing these every single week. 5 o'clock Eastern Standard Time. Uh, if people want the books, go to fidelitypress.org. If you want the magazine, best magazine this side of the hemisphere, culturewars.com. And make sure to subscribe to our Telegram, our Cozy, BitChute, Rumble, all that. Um, anyone who's on Cozy, please follow. Uh, we're at, let's see, 2,800 something. Whoever happens to be the 3,000th follower, I'm going to make a mod. All right, so start following. Uh, let's see, any, oh, people were asking, we're going to ask every week till it happens, any word, Dr. Jones, on the Holocaust narrative? We're waiting for a delivery date. Waiting for a delivery date. All right, any last words? Yes, there will be no program next week. I am going to be speaking in St. Louis. I have to be, I will be on the road at the time of the program. If, you're, if you live uh, in the St. Louis area and you'd like to come uh, to my talk, uh, contact me at jones at culturewars.com and I'll give you the details. Thank you. All right. Thanks, everyone. God bless.